Hey everybody, happy Labor Day long weekend. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. Thank you so much for joining with us today for this edition of SCF Online. And, um, you know, for those of you who've been just asking yourselves questions constantly, like why, why don't we ever talk about Melchizedek on SCF Online? Well, I want you to know today is your lucky day. This is Melchizedek Day. And uh, some of you might be thinking, you know, what or uh, who uh, is Melchizedek? Um, almost sounds like it could be some newfangled uh, composite building material. Uh, you know, you say to your neighbor, oh, I see you're building a new deck. Oh, it's not just a deck, it's a Melchizedek. Um, but Melchizedek is a person who, um, man, is this mysterious, fascinating, kind of obscure character who shows us a picture of Jesus. And so we're gonna look at Melchizedek today. This is uh, the final uh, part of our finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, so we're gonna to spend today talking about Melchizedek, uh, showing us a picture of Jesus. So over these last few weeks, we've uh, man, we've looked in Genesis chapter 1. We've seen Jesus as the creator. Jesus creating the arena of his own redemption, creating a world into which he himself would come, knowing uh, that it would mean suffering and pain for him, but out of love for us, he was willing to do that. And so he had that in mind at creation. And so the creation itself, man, it's like a big billboard that just proclaims his love and uh, his redemptive intentions. Then we looked in Genesis 3, really saw the gospel in seed form in Genesis 3. Jesus, the seed of woman who would crush the serpent. And he would be wounded in the process, a wound from which he would recover uh, by way of resurrection. But the blow dealt to the enemy, man, that's a crushing and final blow. So we saw the, we saw the gospel in Genesis 3. We saw Jesus there. Then we looked and saw Jesus in the Psalms. We saw Jesus in the uh, prophets. We looked at Zechariah and Isaiah. The last couple of weeks, we've looked for Jesus in the Levitical law, Old Testament law. And uh, Jesus himself invited us back there to look to the principles that are embedded in the precepts. We're free from the letter of the law. Praise God for that. But Jesus invites us back to the principles that are embedded there because it's in those principles where we can see the heart of Jesus. And whenever we see the heart of Jesus, well, it helps us to follow him better. And, and that's the whole point. We want to follow Jesus. And so over these last number of weeks, we've looked at the Old Testament. We've looked at texts. We've looked at uh, sentences. We've looked at paragraphs. We've even looked at weird grammar, and we've seen Jesus in that. Well, today, as we look at Melchizedek, we're going to look more at a picture than we are at sentences or paragraphs or grammar. Melchizedek is this character. He shows up in Genesis, and he shows up again in Psalms in the Old Testament. Um, and he provides us a picture of Jesus, even before Jesus is born. 
It's said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think there's a truth to that. Let me tell you a little bit about my Uncle Jerry. Uh, my Uncle Jerry was my dad's brother, a twin brother, in fact. Uh, in, in fact, identical twin brother. Um, they were born in 1926. They never knew their mom or their dad. They were raised in the uh, foster system of that day. And the foster system of the 1920s and the 1930s in Canada was not what it is today, thankfully. Uh, they were raised in abuse, uh, in violence. And so when they finished grade eight, uh, man, as soon as they could after that, they were, they were gone. And they would do crazy things like lie about their age to get jobs and, and that kind of thing. Here's a picture of, of my dad and my uncle. I'm not sure how they how old they are in this picture, but uh, they're quite young, working on one of the Great Lakes tanker ships, and uh, they got their picture in a magazine here. Um, identical twins, of course, they would uh, get mistaken, and there'd be all kinds of shenanigans on the ship. And so uh, here's a picture of them. It's almost like looking into a mirror, but they're actually looking through a porthole window. You can see the face of my father, Gord, uh, and the back of my Uncle Jerry's uh, head. Here's another picture of these guys, uh, of course, much later in life uh, after retirement, all dressed up in their uh, suits for a family wedding. Here's another picture, of course, again, uh, after retirement, uh, dressed in what is more uh, comfortable garb and more typical garb uh, for these two guys. And um, here they are, This uh, they would pick apples in the fall at a local uh, apple grower in Meaford. They just like to, to work and stay busy. And uh, in behind there, you can see my father's 1990 Ford Bronco that I actually mentioned a few weeks ago. My father passed away in uh, 2012. He was 85 years of age when he died. But my uncle Jerry um, lived uh, considerably longer. He passed away when he was uh, 94. He passed away in November of uh, 2020, so like seven, eight months into COVID. Lived in his own home, made all of his own food uh, right up until the end. My Uncle Jerry um, was one of my very favorite people ever. One of my favorite people on planet Earth. He was a beautiful person, a beautiful heart, kind, gentle, generous, not a judgmental bone in his body. And um, I attribute that in part uh, to a habit that he developed uh, when, when my dad and he were 17. They'd gotten jobs at a logging camp somewhere. It might have been in BC, I'm not exactly sure, but they were working in a logging camp. They're 17 years of age. And my uncle began to journal. My dad didn't, but my uncle did. And the journaling back in those days required some effort it, uh, you know, in, to hear him describe it. It was to take the pen and to dip it in the inkwell and to, and to journal. And he did that every day, every day, every day for over 75 years. And um, I attribute his 
gentle, kind demeanor in part to his practice of journaling. He had nothing pent up in him. He was just this transparent, authentic person who was just incredibly comfortable in his own skin. And he kept every one of his journals uh, and he had them in his home on, on shelves in chronological order, uh, uh, rows of them. It was really quite a thing to see. Well, Gene and I love to go and visit Uncle Jerry after my dad's passing and um, we love to visit him. It was just lovely. And uh, so we would often reminisce, as you, as you might imagine, uh, families do. And whenever we might reminisce about uh, kids or grandkids or great grandkids, or if I would reminisce with you know, Uncle Jerry about maybe different cars that he'd driven or homes that he'd lived in or just kind of family events, what he wouldn't do is go to the bookcases and pull out a journal and say, well, here is the description of that event. He wouldn't do that. What he would do is he would pull out photo albums and we would look at pictures or he'd pull out his iPad. Uh, he was really good with an iPad, even for a guy in his nineties. Uh, wasn't a, wasn't a news guy, wasn't a social media guy, but um, liked the iPad for weather and uh, email and pictures. That was, that was his thing. He had lots of pictures on his iPad. And, you know, pictures tell a story in a way that journals don't. Pictures have a way of, of um, drawing us into a story. And pictures have a way of, of, of taking us back. Biblical scholars um, often refer to Melchizedek as a type, a type, T-Y-P-E. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And the use of the word type is not like we uh, use it. You know, we, we use the word type like um, uh, burglary is a type of crime or an apple is a type of fruit. So we're not saying that. It's not that Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a type or a variety of, of Christ. The word type means a picture. A type is a picture. And um, so as we talk about Melchizedek today, we're talking about Melchizedek as a type or as a picture of Jesus. The type, uh, scholars tell us, biblical uh, theologians tell us, the type is fulfilled in the antitype. So the type points to the antitype. Now, when you see that word antitype, you might imagine, okay, that's like the opposite of the type, but that's not, that's not the case. What it means is that when the antitype comes, you no longer need the type. The type is a picture of the antitype is the real thing. Melchizedek is a type or a picture of Jesus who is the antitype. It's Jesus who is the real thing. 
that's like a 60 second, um, you know, summation of typology, which probably should be like an hour long uh, lesson or something. So I hope that gives at least just a, a snippet of understanding to what a type is. It's a picture. Melchizedek is a type or a picture of Jesus, uh, Jesus, who is the anti-type. I said uh, earlier that we see Melchizedek in Genesis and we see him in uh, Psalm. So let's look at Genesis. First of all, this is Genesis chapter 14 and uh, we'll begin at verse 17. After Abram, or we know him as Abraham, I'm just going to call him Abraham. After Abraham returned from defeating Kederleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. Now that little bit of information right there is all the context. It's all the background that you get on Melchizedek. Let's keep reading. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and blessed Abraham saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham gives him 10% to this uh, king priest who shows up with bread and wine. And, and really, that's the end of their relationship. It's kind of, uh, man, it's obscure, it's, it's strange, it's fascinating, it's kind of mysterious. And so how does that, uh, how does that point to Jesus? How is that a picture of Jesus? Well, we'll, we'll keep reading. So uh, let's go to the Psalms where the Psalms speak about Melchizedek. This is Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David. And David begins this Psalm by saying, the Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. That in itself, that little phrase there is a pretty fascinating phrase. The Lord says to my Lord. King David, uh, in his context, was the most significant person in his context. And so here's King David saying, you know, uh, King David has a Lord who is saying to his Lord. An interesting phrase. Jesus actually refers to this phrase in Mark chapter 12. And in Mark 12, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the uh, leaders of the religious law. And um, he says, hey, you guys, do you remember when David talked about, you know, his Lord saying to his Lord? And Jesus just said to them, who do you think he was talking about there? And he just kind of left it, didn't really answer that question. But the obvious thing to kind of infer from that is Jesus... Um, you know, Jesus saw that as talking about him. And so this phrase is uh, very significant to Jesus. Well, let's keep reading. So David says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, Jesus sees this as talking about himself. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So here's a king who is ascending the throne in the presence of your enemies. Uh, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
So wait a second, I thought he was a king. Well, he's a king who ascends the throne in the midst of enemies, and he's a priest forever. And notice this, in the order of Melchizedek. Now that is uh, all that we see in the Old Testament about Melchizedek. Uh, To find out more about him, we've got to go to the New Testament and we go to the author of Hebrews. And um, the author of Hebrews doesn't necessarily give us more information, but really provides us kind of a commentary uh, on Melchizedek. So here we go to Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. The author of Hebrews says, we have this hope, uh, this hope. This is Christ. This is grace. This is the new covenant. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And so it, this uh, firm, secure hope, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Notice this, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so here the author of Hebrews helps us to see um, specifically that David is pointing to Jesus uh, in what he says in Psalm 110. Well, let's uh, keep going here. This is uh, into chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And so what the author is doing here is he's um, helping us to see how unusual a combination this is, a king and a priest uh, in one. That's an unusual combination. Keep reading. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's going to be significant as we keep reading. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So Salem means peace. Um, Historians don't exactly know uh, what city Salem is or even kind of what country or province or region that it was in. Many um, theologians uh, believe that uh, Salem might be the city that would eventually become Jerusalem. uh, And that may be, that could be the case. Uh, But what we do know is that Salem means Peace. Melchizedek means righteousness. So here is the king of peace. Here's the king of righteousness. He's a priest to God who shows up with bread and wine. Let's keep reading. Without father or mother. Okay, talking about Melchizedek here. Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God. He remains a priest forever. So Melchizedek in this story, you know, he appears suddenly kind of out of nowhere and then disappears just as suddenly. And that's unusual. Usually in the Old Testament, when you introduce a significant character in the Old Testament, you would do so by identifying that character's bloodline. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat this guy. And here's what this guy did, and here's where this guy died, and here's where this guy's buried, and maybe here's some of his his, uh, offspring. But um, when it comes to Melchizedek, there's none of this. And it's not by accident. So the author of Hebrews is helping us to see that this, this sudden on the scene and then this sudden disappearance is not accidental. 
There's something about Melchizedek that transcends time. There's something about Melchizedek that transcends human placement in a context. Um, now, what the author of Hebrews stops short of saying is that Melchizedek was Jesus. So the author of Hebrews doesn't say that. The author of Hebrews does not say that this is a Christophany, that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That might be the case, actually. Um, or he might be just a human character that is brought into this story to represent a prophecy of Jesus. Whichever it is, Melchizedek points to Jesus. That is clear. And then notice this next phrase, just think how great he was. Usually when you see that phrase or a phrase like that in the New Testament, it's, it's generally speaking about Jesus, right? Just stop and consider how great Jesus is. But here it's speaking about Melchizedek. Just stop and consider his greatness, right? That's a pretty unusual statement. And keep reading, even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And so we'd read earlier that uh, Abraham had just won a battle and he had plunder, and then he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek, to this mysterious king priest who comes out of nowhere uh, with bread and wine. And Abraham, in his context, was like the most significant individual. You know, by the time Abraham encounters Melchizedek. God has already given Abraham the incredible promises that, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And uh, you're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to have a seed. And through your seed, there's going to come blessing to the whole world. You know, Abraham is a big deal. He's a significant guy in this context. And, um, and so here's this Melchizedek guy, this priest king, who comes along with bread and wine. And Abraham says, I need to give to you. And so there's this thing of tithing. Um, really, it, uh, tithing becomes a symbol of put your money where your mouth is. Tithing is a way of saying, I am going to defer to you and to your greatness. I'm going to give to you in a way that submits to you and acknowledges that there is someone here who is greater than me. And this uh, submission, this deferral, this deference um, goes beyond mere, um, mere words. It goes beyond mere sentiment. It goes beyond mere feeling to something that is really concrete. This is a giving away of something from my life. And so this tithing is seen as something uh, of significance here. And keep in mind that Melchizedek and Ab um, Abraham... Uh, predate the law, right? Moses isn't around yet. The Levitical law doesn't exist yet, and it won't for hundreds of years. This is before Moses. This is before the Levitical law. And so this, you know, before tithing ever becomes instructed as letter of the law, here we see it in this context as something heartfelt. Well, let's keep, let's keep reading. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. And again, the Levitical priesthood is hundreds of years in the future. So these priests collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow 
Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, this man, Melchizedek, he didn't trace his descent from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham's got all these incredible promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. That's speaking about these future uh, Levitical priests who would uh, receive the tithe. They would die. But in the other case, talking about Melchizedek, by him who is declared to be living, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. You, know, you read that and you go, what? Uh, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? But I think what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that, you know, this Levitical priesthood, which would come hundreds of years later, where people who, um, you know, would receive tithes from the people, Israel, you know, under law would tithe to the priesthood. But the priesthood doesn't exist yet in the context of Abraham and Melchizedek. But here's the writer of Hebrews saying that in a sense, Levi and the Levitical priesthood do exist in Abraham because they are his seed. They're his offspring. And so when Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, it's as though this whole a religious system gets wrapped up in submission to Jesus. And so this system that would be yet to come, um, that would be on the receiving end of these tithes to the priestly class, well, the author of Hebrews is saying that whole thing is like kind of inside Abraham right now. And here's Abraham saying, I defer to someone who is greater than me. It's, it's really interesting, you know, before there was the covenant of law, there was the covenant of relationship. There was the covenant of faith. There was the covenant of submission long before there was a covenant of law. And this idea of tithing as a way to show uh, deference to that which is greater, well, that's always been there even before the covenant of law. And so this tithing is a way of showing deference. Basically says, you know, I, I belong to something that's greater than me. It's not just about me and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And I think in there, uh, you know, I think there's a principle in there that can help us grow. Now, this issue of tithing, you know, when you talk about tithing in, in the local church today, it can be um, a pretty energized conversation. It can be polarizing. It can kind of produce some extreme views. And so as I thought about tithing, uh, and I thought about, you know, what, what, what different churches say about tithing, what different preachers say about tithing, what different Christians I know think about tithing and say about tithing. And as I thought about that, it seemed to me like there were three stages of understanding tithing. Three stages of understanding tithing. And um, 
different uh, churches, preachers, different Christians that I know seem to be stuck in different stages. Okay, here's here's the first stage. I call it the grade school level stage of understanding tithing. This does not mean this is just children. Okay. Um, I give these names because this, this is really a kind of chronologically when I was introduced to tithing in grade school. Um, in grade school, you know, grade school kids tend to ask simple questions and they tend to get simple answers. So the, the simple grade school level understanding of tithing question is this, why tithe? And this actually matches up chronologically with my experience of tithing because when I was a kid in church, um, when I started like earning bits of money, uh, doing things like mowing lawns for people, and then when you know I got summer jobs and that kind of thing, the leadership at my church provided me a box of envelopes, and the message was basically this: you need to tithe. And um, so my grade school question was, why tithe? And the simple grade school answer to that question was because the Bible says so. Says so in Malachi chapter three. In fact, if you look literally on the side of the box of the offering envelopes I, I uh, received was a passage of scripture from Malachi chapter three. And uh, here's what Malachi three says. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And so the simple grade school answer to the simple grade school question, why tithe, is that's what the Bible says. Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Let's do it. Uh, now, here's the problem. Okay. And there's, there's a few. That is the old covenant. It's the old covenant. Jesus Christ inaugurated a brand new covenant etched in his blood, ratified at the cross. And, and in that, he frees us from the letter of the law. We're free to follow him. It's a new covenant of, of grace. So this is the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant between God and one nation and one nation only. It was the nation of Israel. And it was a conditional covenant. It was a, if you, then I will. If you, then I will. If you don't tithe, you're going to face a curse. But if you do, man, I'm going to, I'm going to pour out all kinds of blessing on you. And you can see the conditional nature of this old uh, covenant there. And, um, you know, this, this is a bit of an aside, but I know Christians who are stuck in level one. And uh, they're in a 
particular financial situation where they literally cannot afford to give 10% of their income. It would mean um, their kids might do without food or the hydro bill might not get paid. And I know people because they can't afford, I've, I've had these conversations with people who said, I can't afford the 10%. And so they gave nothing because in their mind, if I don't give 10%, I'm robbing God. So I can maybe afford 5%, but why bother? I'm still going to be robbing God because it's not 10%. And so they give nothing. And um, I think that's a, you know, a, a grade school understanding of tithing, um, lacking an understanding that this is old covenant. This is Israel. This is conditional. You know, uh, and there are people and, and, you know, here's another aside while I'm while I'm rolling. It is out of this old covenant, conditional old covenant that springs something called uh, prosperity theology. It's this idea that uh, there's this conditional thing, this I will, if you, I will. And they almost treat God like a like a slot machine. You put in your 10%, pull the handle, and God's somehow obligated to, to give you this big payoff. The new covenant is unconditional. The new covenant says, if you come to Jesus, if you say yes to Jesus, you will be blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, done. Not an if you, then I will. No, it's done in Christ, finished, accomplished perfectly forgiven, perfectly cleansed, made perfectly new at the core, not conditional, uh, finished. Anyway, uh, that was a bit of an aside. So there are some, um, you know, there, there are some problems, I think, with this, uh, with this stage uh, one understanding of tithing. This is the old covenant. This was a challenge to Israel. Now, this is in the book of Malachi, okay? And Malachi is like the last book in the Old Testament. It is like so close to the New Testament. It's only like one or two pages away. It's almost touching. And so some people are like, well, can't we just have this 10% thing? It's so close to the New Covenant. Can't we just like slide it on, on in? Well, let me just say this. I am so glad that we have been introduced to the gospel of grace. And so for some of us, we've moved on to stage two. And here's what stage two is. I call it college level. And again, these aren't age things. Um, for me, it's kind of chronological, but it also reflects like, I think levels of maturity. Uh, so a college student is at least somewhat more aware and has more knowledge and, and uh, some more wisdom than grade school kids do. And, and when I went to college, I went to Bible college. I was 18 and I went off to Bible college. And as sometimes is the case, uh, you know, after two weeks of Bible college, I was an expert on everything. I just knew it all. I was so smart. And, uh, you know, I would, I would uh, critique my home church and I would critique every one of my pastor's uh, sermons. And so the question that I learned to ask at this, uh, you know, college level understanding of tithing was this, why not tithe? Like, here's reasons to not tithe. Uh, why not tithe? And there are some good reasons to not tithe. Um, 
for instance, because we're free from the law. We're free from the letter of the law. Uh, another reason to not tithe is because we're not Israel and the old covenant laws were not given to us. Uh, a third reason would be because we don't want to be legalists. You know, another reason is we don't want to be disrespectful to Jesus. We know that Jesus died to free us from the letter of the law. And so it's, respect, it's disrespectful to Jesus to say, hey, thank you for the grace, but I kind of like this law thing too. Um, Jesus died to free us from the letter of the law. And it's not like as college students, we didn't want to give. This wasn't an excuse to not give. We, we liked to give, actually. There were uh, projects and, uh, you know, uh, ministries and, um, you know, this thing, like uh, this fire, this flood, this famine, this project, this, this current thing. We like to give to those kinds of things, but this week by week giving to the local church, well, that just like wasn't exciting. It didn't resonate with us. And um, it just kind of didn't really catch on. Now, let me say this, and this might surprise you, but I think stage two is better than stage one. And you might be thinking, well, stage one is far more likely to fill up the general fund of the church. And that's probably true. But at least in stage two, there's an understanding that freedom from the law is a beautiful message of grace. And I'm actually happy when people move from stage one to stage two. But I do think there is something much better, and that is stage three. And stage three we call the mature adult level. And the question here is not, why tithe? And it's not, here's why not to tithe. The question at this mature adult level, stage three, is why give beyond the tithe? And I think there's some really great reasons to give beyond the tithe. Number one, because grace leads to gratitude and gratitude leads to generosity. Another reason to give beyond the tithe is because the early church, man, they went way beyond the tithe to radical uh, generosity. And another reason to give beyond the tithe is because the law set a minimum standard. The law set a low bar. And we give beyond the tithe because the Holy Spirit within us encourages us to more than just the minimum. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, like Matthew 5, you read Jesus and he says, um, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said in the Levitical law, but I say to you, you've heard this in the law, you've read this low bar, this minimum standard, but I am calling you way beyond uh, the minimum. In fact, you read um, Jesus in, in Matthew 19. It's not, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is, is talking about law. And he says, you know, the law requires this, but I let you away with this because your hearts are hard. But the new covenant promises a new heart that's soft, a new heart that's compatible with Jesus. And it's from this new heart that Jesus calls us up beyond um, just the minimum. I think another reason why we give beyond just the tithe is because we are able to see the local church as God's 
primary way of changing the world. The local church is God's plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. Now, there are great um, ministry organizations. There are great parachurch agencies. There are great things that individuals are doing, uh, good kingdom work. And we can give to those, and we should, but it's absolutely clear as we read the New Testament that the local church is God's primary way of advancing his kingdom. Local bodies of believers, uh, communities of people touched by the gospel and who then live that out in their communities, carrying that message, inviting others to join in. That's God's heart. That's God's desire to uh, use the local church. And so when we understand God's heart for the local church, it really changes our giving. You know, Sable Christian Fellowship is, is now 31 years old. And at least part of the reason for that, uh, perhaps a large part of the reason for that is stage three givers. People who recognized that we're free from the letter of the law. People who recognize that the law is a minimum standard, a low bar. And people who recognize that Jesus died to free us from the letter of the law so that we're free to follow him. And stage three givers understand that, that God's priority, God's way of changing the world is the local church. And so Sabo Christian Fellowship exists, you know, at least in part today because of people who left percentages behind, who left the bare minimum behind, and who give generously and joyfully and consistently. And I would suggest, and, and this might even seem uh, crass or bold or, or uh, none of my business, but I think it is, it is largely stage three givers who are the ones who remember the local church in their estate planning. The ones who even after they've gone to be with Jesus, want to ensure that they are good stewards of what God entrusted to them and to see that continue to be used to advance the mission of the gospel through the local church. You know, I never cease to be impressed and inspired by Christian people who not only live within their means, but who intentionally live below their means, some, in some cases well below their means, so that they can be radically generous to the local church. Well, let me leave you with three things in closing here. Three things. Number one, to stage three givers, to those who have left the bare minimum behind, to those who have left percentages, who've left the letter of the law behind, and who understand God's primacy of the local church, to stage three givers. Thank you for giving generously. And let me say this, this is SCF online. Some of you perhaps, um, some of you perhaps, uh, for you, SCF online is, is supplemental. It kind of maybe supplements what you experience in your particular local church. Let me encourage you to become a stage three giver in your local church. If for you, SCF Online, if this is your community, if this is your local church, that's awesome. Let me encourage you to become a stage three giver.
to Sobel Christian Fellowship for SCF Online. Secondly, I may say this to stage one and two givers, come and join us in stage three. And lastly, let me say this, Jesus is still making an appearance today. Just like he shows up in the Old Testament, Jesus still shows up today. And I want to point out two ways that Jesus still shows up today. Number one, through the poor. Jesus still shows up today through the poor. Pastor Dave read for us from Matthew chapter 25. And he read about you know, where Jesus talks about giving water to the thirsty and food to the hungry and clothing to the naked and, and the hospitality to the, to the stranger and so on. He said, when you do that, it's like you're doing it to me. It's Jesus saying that he shows up in the poor. He shows up in, in those who are pushed out to the margins. And that when we care for those who are marginalized, when we love them and when we serve them, Jesus says, you're serving and loving me. It's an incredible thing. Jesus takes very personally how we treat those on the margins takes it very personally. In fact, he says he shows up in the midst uh, of that. Secondly, another way that Jesus continues to show up today is through the church, through the church, the church, which is his body. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands of Christ. We are the feet of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And so we are the ones who make tangible the spirit of Jesus to our communities. Jesus is making an appearance through us. And so as we together live out his principles of love, as we together manifest a kingdom culture, as we together uh, share the way of Jesus with our community, we're showing them a picture of the gospel, not just sentences, not just, not just grammar. We're showing them a picture of the gospel. And the local church is God's plan for seeing his kingdom advance. And so uh, we're going to wrap up here. But, um, you know, Melchizedek is a type or a picture of Jesus, the God who is greater. And so just as, just as Abraham deferred to Melchizedek, so too we defer to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we're mindful that this is Labor Day weekend. And so we acknowledge and we confess that all that we are and all that we have and all that will ever be, well, it all belongs to you and it all comes from you. And so we work for you, God, in whatever we do. And we thank you for jobs which provide us with an income. And we thank you for pensions that support us. And so we share the fruit of our labor with you, knowing that you are the great provider. And so, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the God who is greater. You are greater than Abraham. You are greater than the whole Levitical system. And we defer to you, Jesus. And may that deference be seen in every aspect of our lives, including how we give to the local church. We thank you for the local church. 
unique visible and even digital expressions of your body. And so, God, in your word, we see the priority of the local church as your primary way of seeing the kingdom of Jesus advance. And so would you challenge us? Would you stir us up to generosity that leaves behind the low bar of the law and that lives and gives as grateful responses to your amazing grace? Amen. Well, hopefully you have your uh, juice or cracker or bread for communion. And uh, what we're going to do right now is Evan is going to put on the screen some scripture verses. And uh, we're just going to take a minute or two, um, you know, take a quiet moment just to read these verses. Uh, let them just soak into your soul. And then when you're ready, you can eat the bread and drink the cup. And when you do that, you know, just like, just like Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, this king priest who showed up with bread and wine, so too right now Jesus shows up with bread and with wine. The bread, which is his body broken for you, and the blood, the cup, which is his blood shed for you. And so as you eat the bread and drink the cup, Declare along with us, the church, we defer Jesus to you, to your greatness. We confess your greatness today. And we're so thankful for the grace that you've provided us as a free gift because of what you've done on the cross. And after a, a, a short time of communion, uh, Dave will come back and uh, he'll uh, close off the service. God bless you.